Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, from opposition backbencher to Mississauga City Councillor to Hazel McCallion's replacement to leader of the Ontario Liberals, the political rise of Bonnie Crombie. An historic win for the Ontario Green Party, which just doubled the size of its caucus. The province unveils its so-called business case for moving the Ontario Science Centre. We'll dig in. And in your column, my column, I focus on Olivia Chow's uh, success in getting a new deal for Toronto. And I'm going to take one more shot at the ranked ballot point system the Liberals used to pick their new leader over the weekend. He's not giving it up, No, I'm not. Not yet. (laughs) It's Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. So let's get to it. Hey, partner, you ever host a a five and a half hour broadcast before? Uh, No, no, not uh, not until uh, two days ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But that was fun, wasn't it? It was. Did you enjoy yourself? Uh, I did. I uh, was was very conscious of, uh, you know, uh, let's say one of us has a lot more broadcast TV experience than uh, the other. And, and which uh, one of us is that? Uh, that would be you, oh, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, and, yeah, I've done uh, a few of these before. Didn't uh, didn't want to let down the team. <laughs> you Not only did you not let down the team, but your, your insightful questioning and your intelligence picked up on the floor on the day was all, I think, very useful for, uh, certainly for me and for our viewers as well. So well, well done. Thank you. I, I do think by the end, I was starting to like, lose my grasp of words. I think if, if <laughs> our viewers want to go back and watch the live stream, you can see that I think my last question to Bonnie Crombie was a bit of a train wreck, but uh, <laughs> I, I think nobody took it personally. We were five hours in at that point. So I think we could all be forgiven for whatever. Given the uh, long day and the, the question and answer that Bonnie Crombie gave me at the beginning of her race for the leadership, uh, she might take this as a little bit of uh, just desserts. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. You were the, I think you were the 24th interview she did the day she got into the race, and it was you that she said to, we need to move the Liberal Party to center-right, govern yes. from center-right. Yes. And then she walked it back. Yes. Anyway, you have that effect on people. <laughs> Let's get into the mailbag. We enjoy getting your feedback at onpolitics at tvo.org. That's onpolitics at tvo.org. You can also reach us on our other social media feeds, on X or on Facebook. Anyway, JMM, what have we got this week? Linda reached out to us on X, formerly Twitter. She writes, I have a question. If Bonnie Crombie wins the Liberal leadership, obviously this question was submitted before uh, the race was over, uh, does she have a seat in the legislature or does she have to wait and for how long? Ah, very good question. Okay, The, the answer to the first part, does she have a seat in the legislature? No, she does not. And there's no automatic seat for a new leader for a party. Uh, It doesn't work that way. Having said that, she doesn't necessarily need one to be the leader of the party. There is no obligation for a party leader to actually have a seat in the legislature to fulfill the functions of the job. Now, it's two and a half years until the next provincial election, and she will obviously want to run in that and find a riding to run in. But there's no obligation for her to get a seat before that. However, JMM, if a seat does come open because, let's say, a current MPP quits or even dies, 
What are her options at that point? You know, it's a tough decision for uh, any party leader. If it's a Mississauga seat, uh, she is still currently the mayor of Mississauga, uh, she would almost certainly run in the by-election. And she said as much uh, on the show uh, on Saturday. Now, if she runs and wins, she has to resign as mayor under Ontario law, uh, but not before that. Uh, as we say, she'd be very likely to run in any kind of Mississauga by-election. But if it's at all uh, a marginal seat, uh, maybe a seat that opens up, but it's very far from Mississauga or Peel region, you know, she would have a, a tougher decision, right? She doesn't want to run for a seat and then lose. That would uh, weaken her in an eventual uh, general election and, and would weaker, weaken her in the interim. So just as a for example... Uh, there will have to be a by-election in Monty McNaughton's old seat of Lambton, Kent, Middlesex. Would she want to run there? I mean, it seems unlikely to me, but I would be surprised if the Liberals didn't at least put a poll in the field to test her chances. She did say at her press conference after her victory that she would consider that the Lambton-Kent Middlesex seat. And just, uh, you know, uh, FYI, folks, we're, we're not going back to ancient history to see when this last happened. I mean, John Tory, when he was leader of the Ontario Progressive Party, after he won his convention, he did not have a seat, right? He was a free agent. He didn't have a seat. Uh, he ended up running in, I think the long name of the riding back then was Defren Peel Wellington Gray. I think that's what it was called. And he did run there in a by-election, and he won, and he held that seat until... The 2000 and, oh my gosh, which election would this would have been? 2007? 2007, yes, thank you. 2007 election, where he decided to leave that safe conservative seat and try to move into a 416 seat. And of course, he lost to Kathleen Wynne in Don Valley West. But there's an example of somebody who didn't have a seat as leader, found a seat, and then switched seats. And it didn't work out in his case. And not only does a party leader not require a seat in the legislature. We're just going to geek, geek out a little bit more here. There's actually no rule saying that a premier must have a seat in the legislature. Uh, Christy Clark, the former premier of BC, uh, her party won a general election, but she lost her seat. And she remained premier until a, uh, a member of her liberal party resigned and they held a by-election and she won her seat back. But, uh, you know, we've had, uh, federally, we've had prime ministers who were senators uh, and had no, no seat in the House of Commons at all. This is probably not something you're going to see a lot of in modern politics, but constitutionally, it is all allowed. I was going to say, you're going back about 150 years for yeah. that example. We, we've got more recent ones. The BC example you gave is right. Uh, Clyde Wells uh, won an election for the Liberals in Newfoundland and Labrador, but he lost his own seat, but was still the premier, even though he didn't have a seat. Anyway, you think we've bored them enough with all this? I mean, I hope not, because we've got more podcasts to do. <laughs> we do. Let's get to it. Any questions or comments you have, drop us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Now, on to issue one. Doug Ford and his conservatives, they will be coming after us at any minute now. So we have to be ready. We have to be ready to work even harder, but together. 2026 has been in all of our sights this entire campaign, but this is our moment. That's Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie offering up a victory speech after her three-ballot win on Saturday at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Crombie got 43% of the total available points on the first ballot, inched closer to victory on the second ballot, and went over the top on the third. In fact, she ended up with more than 53% of the available points, 
compared to Member of Parliament Nate Erskine-Smith, who took 46.6% on that third and final ballot. JMM, let's start with this. At the end of the day, a leadership convention is about two things. It's, of course, about picking a leader, but it's also about putting on an exciting show that gets people jazzed up enough to join or show interest in or ultimately vote for the party in question. Now, on that second issue, in your judgment, how did the Liberals do at creating a convention with some buzz? Well, I would say they did better than they did in 2020 uh, when uh, Stephen Del Duca won on a first ballot. Uh, and they also, uh, I'm going to be a little, little bit of a barb here, uh, they did better than the NDP did in 2023, obviously, because the NDP did not have a, uh, a competitive race. Uh, they only had one candidate, uh, Marat Stiles. It was a, a more competitive race than the Liberals have had in, in a while, as I said. It took three ballots to pick a winner. Um, so I think in that sense, the, the convention itself, uh, although, uh, as we've already said on this podcast, there was no actual drama on the day of because the votes had all been cast. Uh, I do think the convention managed to garner some interest that it might not have if the results had seemed more uh, preordained. Uh, but we do need to mention that there was a pretty major problem with this leadership vote uh, due to uh, apparently some communications errors in the weeks leading up to the vote. Uh, many liberals apparently weren't clear on when their window to vote was. And so turnout was frankly abysmal. Uh, only 30% or so of the I think, eligible. I think it was less, wasn't it? They had 22,000 of 103,000. So they're getting... Right, and then but they disqualified some of the 103,000 in advance. So uh, hmm. obviously folks can tell that the math here is a bit shaky, but hmm. certainly well, well below half and, yeah. and certainly below a third uh, voted. So that is, I think, a very uh, big asterisk on what was otherwise, I think, uh, a pretty buzzy convention and hopefully one that, uh, you know, hopefully for the liberals, at least, uh, from their perspective, they would re really, you know, like the buzz and they would also like the money that this uh, contest raised. Right. Now, you, you know, you and I in our time have heard the odd convention victory speech. And I thought Bonnie Crombie gave a bit of an unusual victory speech because, yes, there were the typical supportive comments about her competitors and there were the typical shots at Doug Ford. But there were also some very personal revelations about her background, the fact that her parents split up when she was just three years old, uh, that her dad faced addiction and mental health issues, and that she and her family spent some time living in a rooming house in Toronto's West End. She said she had a wonderful childhood, but as she looks back on it, obviously, uh, there were some troubling moments. What did you think of the use of uh, a lot of her personal background in that victory speech. Well, the kiss of death for any politician is being seen as uh, being out of touch, right? And uh, the Tories certainly have wasted no time in their uh, press release immediately after her victory, accusing Crombie of driving fancy cars and owning a home in the Hamptons. And these kinds of accusations can be really toxic for any candidate. And if they're not responded to uh, quickly and forcefully, there's the real risk that you let your opponent define you before you can. So Crombie is putting the parts of her biography that are most uh, responsive, most uh, sympathetic. Uh, she's putting them out there early on, and I imagine we'll hear them often. Uh, and, you know, these are uh, real things in her life that I think are going to resonate with uh, a lot of people. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people can say, well, hey, I mean, uh, I'm also a child of divorce, or, or I also had a family member with uh, substance uh, issues. So, I mean, it is 
political, but it's not um, purely political. It also, I think, has the capacity to reach people at a, a, an emotional level. I will also add that, well, neither you nor I are, are scandalized by political spin when it happens. I think uh, we both agree that spin has to take a backseat to facts. And uh, Crombie told us on Saturday that she doesn't even own a car. In fact, as mayor, she's relied on uh, Mississauga's fleet vehicles for uh, many years. And the, the so-called home in the Hamptons isn't really in the Hamptons at all, uh, though she did inherit a property on Long Island from her extended family. Uh, if our listeners want to understand the distinction between Long Island and the Hamptons with some references to the Real Housewives cinematic universe. <laughs> I would direct them to the Twitter account of Allison Smith, the publisher of Politics Today. She did a good job of sorting this all out. Well, this is all very fascinating because, of course, yes, the Tories are trying to portray her as sort of an out-of-touch, effete, you know, Hamptons hanging out, you know, beautiful person, that kind of thing. And uh, kudos here to Robert Benzie of the Toronto Star, who wrote in his account of the convention on the weekend, in a statement, the Tories, whose leader, Ford, is a multi-millionaire scion of a wealthy, politically connected family, said Crombie doesn't get the concerns of everyday people. <laughs> now, that, that was a nice way of balancing things out there. Yes. And I think for the record, we should say the premier has a home in Toronto. The premier has a cottage in Muskoka. The premier has a place in Florida. So if they want to start counting houses and who's got more of them and in more luxurious places, I guess we can do that. But why don't we... Uh, why don't we get back to issues here? Yes, indeed. As we said on convention day, when the results are announced, the most important person in the party is, of course, the winner. But the next day, the most important person is the candidate that came second, because that candidate will decide whether the battle is well and truly over and the party will unite or whether the contest will continue and he will nip at the heels of the winner. So you and I talked to Nate Erskine-Smith after the results were announced what did you hear from him as to which way he intends to proceed? Much like he said for the last several weeks when this question has come up, you know, he's not really giving a clear answer. Uh, he he doesn't just want to run for the sake of seeking a seat in the legislature. He happens to already have a seat in the federal parliament right now, and it's not like that's an unimportant post. Uh, there's the additional wrinkle that he can't just run for the same seat uh, that he holds federally at the provincial level because Beaches East York already has a liberal MPP, former city council. Mary Margaret McMahon. And he was quite clear that, with us that he doesn't want to displace her. He, think, uh, he thinks she's doing great work. Uh, so finding the right seat and being assured that he can play a serious role in the party going forward, uh, those are both important uh, factors that he is going to uh, have to decide on. And, you know, this is not a novel problem for political parties and leaders to solve. Uh, in 1996, Dalton McGuinty beat Gerard Kennedy on the final ballot, but Kennedy ended up being McGuinty's education minister and played a really crucial role in securing labor peace with the teachers' unions early in McGinty's government. So in that sense, you know, Crombie and Erskine-Smith need to figure out what, if any kind of role he can play in the party's future going forward and whether he will be, you know, Kennedy to Crombie's McGinty uh, hmm. for the future of the party. Well, now that the contest is over, the three contestants who did not win, they just go back to their regular jobs, right? Nate Erskine-Smith and Yasser Nakvi go back to Ottawa, resume their duties as members of parliament. Ted Shu is a member of provincial parliament and um, made a member statement Monday morning about the dawning of a new era of liberalism in Ontario. Uh, but Bonnie Crombie actually has some stuff to figure out. She has got to quit as the mayor of Mississauga before she can dive into 
being the liberal leader. Do we know about the timetable for all of that? Well, she has said that she wants to get the uh, current uh, municipal budget through for the city of Mississauga. Uh, she wants to get that budget process completed. Uh, she will use, of course, uh, some of the strong mayor powers that uh, Premier Doug Ford's government has uh, granted the mayors of large cities. Uh, she will uh, shepherd the budget through using those powers. Uh, she told us that she expects to resign either by the end of this month, December, or early in January. When she does resign, that will necessitate a by-election for the uh, mayor of Mississauga, uh, similar to the one that was held in Toronto that uh, picked Olivia Chow to succeed John Tory. Um, I, I will also add, you know, once upon a time in Ontario, you were allowed to be a mayor or a member of a city council and also be an MPP. Uh, historically, that happened. It is no longer allowed under provincial law. <laughs> that's that's So she can't do both jobs at once. She's not allowed to do both jobs. Boris Johnson was both mayor of London and and a British MP. So it is still allowed in some places. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Uh, There's no deputy mayor in Mississauga. They don't have one. So I was talking to Alvin Tejo, who's a member of Mississauga City Council at the convention. He actually ran for the leadership last time in 2020. And uh, he certainly gave every indication that he was thinking about running for mayor at this by-election that will take place. Uh, I also ran into a trustee named Noha Dachrub, who's 35 years old and I think probably an up-and-coming star in Mississauga politics. She said it's too early for her to run, so it doesn't look like she will be. Uh, I've spoken to some others who want to get behind Matt Mahoney, both of whose parents were on Mississauga City Council, uh, Katie and Steve. Steve was an MPP at one time as well and an MP, so this is a pretty political family. So it may well be that we should look for his name uh, in the coming days. Anyway, it's going to be a while, though, probably May, May of 2024, before the Mississauga by-election to replace Bonnie Crombie as the mayor. Now on to issue two. And thank you to the people of Kitchener Centre. They put their trust in me that I can speak for them, that I'll put people over party uh, and that they're tired of the old line party politics, putting other people's priorities ahead of their constituents. So I'm, I appreciate that as a Green, I can be an inde- independent voice for Kitchener. Kitchener Centre has a new MPP and it's Aislin Clancy, who spoke at the Queen's Park Media Studio yesterday. Now, why are we talking about a by-election that has no impact on the state of play in the legislature? Because it's an historic win for the Greens. This is just the second seat the Greens have ever won, leader Mike Schreiner's being the other in Guelph. JMM, you told us last week that you had gone to Kitchener Centre and that your spidey senses, as you were surveying the land there, your spidey senses told you something unusual was happening. This was a former NDP seat, now lost to the Greens, Seems your spidey senses were bang on. I, I mean, I won't claim to have some special, you know, deep psychic connection to the riding of Kitchener Center, but there really were a lot of Green Party uh, signs out there on the streets. So, um, yeah, no, it was a very uh, interesting uh, by-election. I mean, the the scale of the Green victory here is is pretty impressive. Uh, Clancy got about 48% of the vote, or 11,300 votes. The New Democrat, Debbie Chapman, received 26.73%, or 6,312 votes. Uh, so, you know, they were really the, the two... Uh, primary contestants, a really fierce contest between the two of them. And of course, the NDP had held this seat prior to the departure of Laura May Lindo. The Liberal candidate finished fourth. 
signaling that the party really has a, a lot of work to do. Um, but they, they had held that seat uh, for many years before Laura Maylinda won it in 2018. So um, in particular, because they were heading directly into this leadership convention that we were just speaking about, I think they, they had a lot of hope that they could pick up Kitchener Center right before the convention and, and really tell a story about a resurgent liberal party. And uh, that, at least in Kitchener Center, didn't really happen. Clearly not. They came forth. Uh, what can you tell us about Queen's Park's newest MPP? Uh, Clancy is a city councillor for Ward 10 in the city of Kitchener. Uh, she was first elected in uh, 2022, but uh, she must now step down uh, as she becomes an MPP. Uh, I did hear some chatter about that uh, from uh, some of her rivals about uh, how it meant that she had promised to serve out a full term and is in fact going to end up serving just bit, a bit more than a year of her term. Uh, she was also a social worker in the Waterloo Catholic District School Board. Now, in the lead up to by election day, uh, it's not surprising to see, obviously, a bunch of people out there endorsing various candidates. David Suzuki, perhaps not a shock, uh, one of this country's foremost environmentalists, uh, endorsing Clancy for the Green Party. But this one was a surprise. Mike Farnan, who's a former New Democrat member of the Ontario legislature, he was also out there telling people, don't vote NDP, vote for Aislinn Clancy. So that was different. And apparently that had some impact. So what do you think Clancy's focus is going to be now? Well, as a city councillor, she was uh, focused and, and well-versed on issues like climate change, housing affordability, and the cost of living. I mean, every candidate I spoke to uh, in Kitchener Centre was saying, you know, the thing they were hearing at the door was affordability, cost of living. Uh, the first issue she wants to tackle at Queen's Park is rent evictions and illegal evictions, which is something that uh, she saw while on Kitchener City Council. Uh, the vacancy rate in her area is the lowest it has been in 20 years. Now, we shouldn't forget to mo mention here that Mike Morris, who is the federal MP for the area and also in the Green Party, therefore the Greens had some presence on the ground. They had some organization there. This was a one-off by-election. In a way, you know, all the stars aligned for the Greens to take this. If they were ever going to win a second seat, these were the conditions under which it could happen. So, And they did, so good for them. Now, however, the joke going around is that the Green Party has doubled the size of its caucus, which is true. You know, I'm not great at math, but I do know that two seats are double one seat. So the question is, is this the start of something? Or do we think this is a one-off election kick in the shins to the Ford government? I do want to say one thing about the the joke about you know doubling its caucus. On uh, Thursday night, I tweeted out, you know, congratulations to the Green Party on doubling its caucus. And then I, I thought for a second, oh, gosh, does that come off as me being like sarcastic or petty or something? I, I, but it's, it is the mathematical thing. It is a fact. And then the Green Party's press release it was headlined, Green Party Doubles Caucus. <laughs> Queen's Park. Like, okay, they're probably okay. Uh, but as, as to your question, right, uh, the safest answer is, I think, to say that by-elections are often weird, <laughs> and we probably shouldn't draw too many conclusions from one contest. Uh, but of course, this isn't just one by-election that we've had this year. Uh, there were by-elections in Scarborough Guildwood and Kanata Carlton to replace MPPs Mitzi Hunter and Marilee Fullerton. The Tories could have plausibly taken either or both of those ridings. Uh, they had held Canada Carlton before, and in Scarborough Guildwood, they had longtime city councillor Gary Crawford as a candidate. They lost both of those by elections to the Liberals. And now in Kitchener Centre, where they came in second with 26% of the vote just last year, they scored a pretty dismal 13% last week for third place. This is the Tories. This is the Tories, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, now, they had a, a candidate who did not live in the riding, and that clearly hurt them. Uh, but, you know, as much as 
everyone except the Greens has, I think, some tough questions to answer about the results in Kitchener. I think some of the issues of the last year, in particular the Greenbelt scandal, have uh, stuck to the government in ways that we might not actually be seeing them show up directly in general opinion polling. Do I remember this correctly? Did, did the Tory candidate live in Keswick, Ontario? Yes, something okay. like 150 kilometers away. Well, I was going to say Keswick and Kitchener, both, they both start with K's, <laughs> but that's about all they have in common. That, that, that's not going to help you if you're trying to find a seat in Kitchener. Okay, on to issue three. Last week, the province released a so-called business case on the proposed relocation of the Ontario Science Centre from its current location in Don Mills in Midtown Toronto to the waterfront. It's been in Don Mills since the 1960s. The report from Infrastructure Ontario says the current site is failing both operationally and physically, and it insists a new facility by Toronto's waterfront could, over the long haul, save the province a lot of money. Critics of the plan say that the numbers aren't adding up, and groups such as Save Ontario Science Centre point out a lot could be lost if the current building is left unsupported. JMM, tell us more. So, as is common with these kinds of documents, the business case analysis presents two options, uh, remain on site or relocate. Uh, Remaining, they say, could cost $1.3 billion over 50 years for maintenance and rehabilitation. Relocation to a building half the size could cost $1.05 billion over 50 years. Infrastructure Ontario's report is also making the case for relocation for another reason, as IO's CEO Michael Lindsay pointed out last week at a technical briefing. We're now at a very different point in the life cycle of the Science Centre where it's effectively at end of life in respect of many of its systems and facilities. So their argument is that the 50-year-old building is going to need an overhaul to keep it fully operational. But even if there's a new uh, Ontario Science Centre, the original building will stay in place. Uh, Maintenance costs have been billed at $300 million for critical repairs. And uh, that inevitable expense wasn't factored into the savings mentioned earlier. And of course, uh, maintenance of the facility has been deferred for many years while the government tries to decide what to do with it. Okay, so a lot of numbers there, but the bottom line is they think they can save a quarter of a billion dollars if they move the Science Centre from its current location to the waterfront. Now, that's the business, so-called business case. Opposition leader Marit Stiles called it a shell game guesstimate on savings, and Mike Schreiner, the Green leader, questioned how a new attraction in downtown Toronto will create even more gridlock. Okay, what else has come out since the release of the report? Well, our producer, Matthew O'Mara, reached out to Floyd Ruskin, co-founder of Save Ontario's Science Centre. Here's what Ruskin had to say about the business case and the lack of maintenance in the existing facility. It's a solid, a very solid document, 78 pages uh, with 300 appendices and a two-page review. But as you start delving in as the reporters at Queen's Park did, that there's uh, many, many, many inaccuracies and um, falsehoods. I'm Floyd Ruskin, uh, co-chair of Save Ontario Science Centre. The the most striking one and the one where the CEO of, uh, of Infrastructure Ontario wouldn't would respond to is that here's all these numbers that we're using, but they left off a $100 million item, which is uh, the pods and the Sinosphere at Ontario Place to house uh, the Science Centre. That's a pretty big uh, omission. The other thing that comes up is that this document was prepared last March and it's only being shown uh, to the public now. And 
you know, why? Why, after all these calls for a business case to be presented so people can review it and know where our taxpayer dollars are going, uh, did it take so long? Is it because of uh, the new legislation that's been enacted that, you know, tough luck to uh, uh, how voters feel, um, we're going to be, be doing things anyway. So we, we had to look at it with a lot of skepticism. It's a 50-year-old building. If you don't maintain it, if your roof needs, it is leaking, do you demolish the house and move to a half-size house or do you just repair the roof? Infrastructure Ontario has neglected this. And I'm going to call them a slumlord now, because if you don't put any resources into uh, a major Ontario asset, then what's the expectation? And the design was specific as purpose-built interactive science museum. The traditional kind of exhibits, the kind you just look at, can't be found here. At the Ontario Science Centre, the visitor does far more than just look. Instead, he entertains himself and has fun. It's uh, really hard to move, let's say, an uh, interactive experience like the rainforest. That can't be replicated. And it won't be replicated in the, in, in the new place. There's a group in Thorncliffe, Thorncliffe Park uh, Autism Support Network. And some of the kids are mobile and some of the kids are mobility challenged. They can get there from Thorncliffe Park, go over the Overly Bridge, and you know what? It's, it's a 20-minute walk. And they can enjoy the science program. And you really want kids you know, stuck in downtown traffic. Kids walk there and get to and get to enjoy things and experience uh, have the science experience. The uh, the lack of maintenance and and the deferred maintenance didn't start with the Ford government. It it can started probably way as far back as McGinty and um, continued through uh, Kathleen Wynne's government as well. But elected a government, uh, the Ford government, to do things differently. And they kept the status quo and basically starved it. The marketing budget was cut. So how do you draw people in if you don't have, uh, once again, resources are resources, money, whether it's to maintain the building or to maintain uh, the attendance. If Infrastructure Ontario has a history of not funding uh, the Ontario Science Centre, what's our expectation for a new science center. So these are challenges, you know, that, that are certainly not, not being addressed. When Doug Ford and Olivia Chow unveiled their big deal for Toronto, which I think was only a week ago, but it feels like longer, they were asked about the fate of the existing science center building at Don Mills in Eglinton in Midtown Toronto. And Doug Ford said he'd leave the original building's fate up to the city. And Olivia Chow said it will remain in place with science programming. So the report continually brings up the city breaking its 99-year lease on the site and mentions the potential to, quote, unlock land value. I guess we need to understand what all that means. Take us through that part of the report. You know, breaking the lease, unlocking land value. What does all that mean? The, the lease currently has uh, no clause to allow the province to sort of unilaterally exit the lease. Um, so they have to come to some kind of mutual agreement. But uh, 
the city owns the land, would the city, for example, end up owning the structure afterwards? Well, that's something you have to come to an agreement with the province on. Does the province uh, sell it to them? Uh, does the province ask for full market value of the building if it sells it to the city? The province had been leasing the land, but it was for the princely sum of a dollar a year. <laughs> um, it was just, you know, a purely sort of nominal sum. So does the city then say like, well, hey, we leased you this extremely valuable land for a dollar a year. Maybe you could give us a break on the, the cost of the building. Those are the kinds of discussions that they will have to have. And all of this is potentially in service of uh, building more housing. That's the context in which the business case uh, raises this issue over and over again. Uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before uh, because uh, former mayoral candidate Anna Bailao had proposed uh, building housing on the Science Center site. And there is a chunk of the, that site that is already expected to see some housing development. It's the, the northernmost parking lot uh, for the Science Centre. The, the city would like to redevelop that as a, a partially affordable housing development. The broader property is uh, a much... That's where things get complicated with uh, all of these terms of the lease and everything. So it is potentially extremely very valuable land because the Eglinton Crosstown... Uh, it, when it opens. Uh, Don't you mean if it opens? <laughs> uh, if and when the Eglinton Crosstown opens, uh, that will go right past the Science Centre. Uh, the Ontario line uh, will also uh, go right past the Science Centre, basically starts at the Science Centre. And so that is uh, potentially extremely lucrative for uh, the government, for the City of Toronto, uh, the province, if they want to uh, partner with it. This is one of the possibilities that the, the report raises, having the city and the province redevelop at that land in partnership. But of course, all of this is, is highly theoretical because at least right now, you still need both the province and city to agree uh, to, to renegotiate the lease. And, you know, as much as uh, last week's agreement is uh, uh, with the, the new deal for the city of Toronto that we, t we spoke about, that's a, a sign of at least positive relations between uh, the mayor and the premier. This stuff is really complicated and you can't necessarily bank on being able to find uh, happy agreements to all of these problems. Here's a name that uh, was very big in architecture circles for a very long time, and that name is Raymond Moriyama. He, of course, is the architect behind the Ontario Science Centre in Midtown Toronto, and his design was considered incredibly forward-looking and avant-garde at the time, and it, it, it still is. Uh, but that isn't the only science centre he's done. Science North in Sudbury was designed by him, and that facility has expanded operations to Kenora and Thunder Bay. So that's a potential roadmap that the City of Toronto and the province could look at for the existing facilities in Don Mills. You could invest more, expand programming, reach more people, but that does not appear to be the plan right now. It's also worth noting that the Auditor General's office is releasing its annual report uh, tomorrow, if uh, you're listening to this on Tuesday. Uh, so that would be Wednesday at the legislature. Uh, and we do expect to see a substantial chapter about the Science Centre in there. Uh, indeed, it's possible that last week's business case presentation was an a, a attempt by the government to preempt that news. Uh, but regardless, I think our listeners have not yet heard the last of this. Time now for our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, in which JMM and I reminisce about columns that we wrote for the TVO website, tvo.org, over the past week. 
JMM, what have you got for us? Uh, I wrote about uh, Olivia Chow's New Deal for the city of Toronto, uh, where I basically argue that uh, she won a lot for the city and gave up relatively little, which is pretty much the definition of smart politics. Uh, but some people do disagree, and I want to shout out uh, Taylor Noakes. We also ran a column uh, by Taylor arguing uh, the opposite, that I am wrong and I know nothing. <laughs> so uh, people can find both of those on our website. Who's right, you or Taylor? Well, I mean, I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have to read both columns and make up our Indeed, own minds. Indeed, our, our okay. listeners can judge for themselves. Well, uh, I am here to beat a dead horse, <laughs> as the expression goes. First of all, in all seriousness, congratulations to the Liberals. They ran a good convention. There were any number of, you know, myriad things that could have gone wrong uh, that we've seen in previous conventions, from poor counting to uh, not enough volunteers on hand to poor security to a flood uh, that befell the 2013 convention and required uh, the voting to be moved to a different location. Anyway, none of that happened. This all seemed to come out pretty well organized, and it didn't take 12 hours. It took about five, five and a half, which is not an outrageous amount of time as these things go. But, and I understand that the toothpaste is out of the tube and we're not going back, but I just want to tell all you young whippersnappers who are listening to this podcast right now, you have no idea how much fun it used to be. <laughs> this was a ranked ballot points system based one member, one vote convention not really even a convention. It was more a leadership election. But in the good old days when they had delegated conventions, the amount of drama that was possible and the show that all the candidates could put on over the course of two and a half days was just so much better. And I, I entreat you to read the last column I will write on this because I realize that I'm getting nowhere trying to make this argument and that we're not going back to the way it was. But I tell you what, after this column went up on the website, I got dozens and dozens of emails from people saying to me, oh, you're so right. It was so much better back when. But we're not going back. I get it. <laughs> but there you go. The dead horse has been well and truly <laughs> flogged. <laughs> yes, it has. Yes, it has. And while you're at it, get off my lawn. <laughs> that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow the show too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org or reach us on X or Facebook. Now, here's a quick email from a listener named Dan who writes, Thanks, Steve and John Michael, for that detailed explanation regarding Ontario Liberal Party's leadership process and Steve's biased but amusing preference for delegated conventions. Having participated at 1996 convention and the one previous choosing Lynn McLeod as leader, I agree the dynamics are different but much more fun. Not prepared to diss the process at the moment, yet I am keeping an open mind. Keep it up. Your duo does a great service to democracy in Ontario. You untangle what may seem perplexing for many voters. Your loyal fan, Dan. Thank, Thank you very you, Dan. much. Yeah, that was nice. Even if you think I'm... Yeah, on this one I'm biased. There's no doubt. But it's <laughs> biased based on facts. Anyway, I've said enough. I've said enough. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Carlo Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.